great. Well, thanks for coming, everybody. For those of you that don't know me, my name's Dave Taylor. I'm the pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. We are in the process as a congregation and as a local church going through the, the Gospel of John, a book that's written by the Apostle John, the Evangelist John. And over the last four weeks, we've covered some major ground. In verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, we basically just look at an introduction to the whole thing, and he really maps out really what is going to be going on in the whole of the rest of the book. We then have John the Baptist declaring in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world, and introduces that Jesus to us then as the one, as the Messiah, as the Son of God that has truly come. We then see Jesus calling his first disciples, and then, as we saw last week, we see Jesus with his first miracle turning water into wine. But as we continue today, we continue with the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. So I'd be grateful if you'd please turn to John chapter 2. For those of you that may have thought up until this point that Jesus was like something you see in a Renaissance painting of Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. This is probably going to blow your mind a bit because Jesus absolutely freaks out. You are going to see that Jesus is not the girly boy that we see in most of the pictures that we see of him painted. But Jesus is a man's man. Jesus has been brought up by a carpenter. He is hard and he is courageous and he is bold. And we see that on full display right here in John chapter 2. And so if you'd like a title, I've called this message Jesus freaks and let's go from verse 13 to the verse of 22 so 80s so bible <laughs> all right verse 13 the passover of the jews was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you disclose yourself fully and greatly in your word. You reveal to us what you're like. You reveal to us what you are passionate about. You reveal to us what you hate, what grieves you. And you reveal yourself to us in all your glory. Lord, I pray would you open our eyes afresh today that we may behold Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb. Lord, help us do these things by your abounding grace. Speak into our souls for encouragement, for correction, for growth. Lord, have your way amongst us in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start today with a question. And that question is this. 
What object in your life has the most significance to you? What is the object in your life that is for you packed with significance? Now, you're not allowed to include people in that. People aren't allowed. You're also not allowed to include animals in that. But outside of that, what is the object that has the most significance to you? Here's another way of looking at the same question. If your house is on fire, what would be the one thing that you would go in to grab? So, Auntie Betsy, sadly she's had to go. The dog, the gerbil, the hamster, you're not allowed to go in for them. But what would be the object that you would run into that house to get? Well, I asked Alison this week as my secretary. She is the guinea pig of all questions. I said, Alison, what would you run into your house for? And straight away she said, I'd run in for the photos. I said, why? Why would you run into the photos? Well, because the photos have emotional significance. They're, they're memories. They're not worth much, but I can't replace them. Because they're emotional and they're, and they're dear to me. And the more I got to thinking about that question this week, the more I realized that in all reality, we, we would all run in for things like that, wouldn't we? We probably wouldn't run in for the most expensive thing. We probably wouldn't run in for our checkbook or our credit card because we can, we can replace all those things. We would run in for something that has emotional significance to us, something that's important, something that we hold and treasure dearly. And so for Alison, that would be her photos. For me, as I was thinking about it this week, I realized that I would run into my house for my granddad's medals. Because my granddad's medals are, are important to me. They're not worth a lot. I mean, they're just little bits of metal and little pieces of cotton. But to me, they're important because my granddad fought in Africa. He fought in Italy. He fought in France. And as he came home, then he came home with all these medals. And on my 18th birthday, he gave me the most wonderful present I ever got. He gave me his medals. Still in the box to Mr. John W. Taylor, Spalding, Lincolnshire, that he was sent the medals in and he gave me the whole package and all the medals that came with it. And I still treasure them greatly. And I don't treasure them because of the value. I treasure them because they're emotionally significant because of what they symbolize. They symbolize to me my granddad and my granddad's efforts and what he really gave his life for doing at that time in his life. And the truth is we all have things like that, don't we? Symbols that matter, things that are important to us. For some of us, it'll be an object, like some medals or like photos. If you're an American Marine, then that object is a flag. That's why you've seen pictures on telly before in Afghanistan or Iraq, and they're always getting the flag and burning it, aren't they? And you think, why bother? It's just a piece of cotton. But not to an American Marine, it's not. That's their country. When they hoist that flag, this means something. It means something of what they own and it means something of what their property and what they stand for. For others of us, it can be places, homes that we were born into, places that we grew up, schools that we went to, that later on in years they mean something and they value something. In all of our lives, symbolism matters. And if we're really going to understand this text, and if we're really going to understand what is happening here in chapter 2 from verse 13 through 22, then we also need to understand that symbolism matters to Jesus too. Symbolism matters. See, even on the face of it, this is a great story. I mean, it's pretty wild, eh? Jesus rocks into a temple and he freaks out. 
He is absolutely going crazy. I mean, imagine the scene of what is taking place. He walks in. He sees what is taking place. He makes a whip out of cords and he starts to whip the animals and whip the people. He starts to go crazy with the moneylenders and he literally freaks out and screams to them to get out of the temple. He kicks them out. It's a pretty crazy scene. And even on the face of it, it's a great story. But it's not hard to see what is taking place. It's simple. That's what's taking place. But I think the real energy in understanding what is taking place here requires two further questions. Number one, why is this happening? And number two, how does this impact me today? What difference is this meant to make in in my life today? See, if we don't understand why, then this text really doesn't sing to us. And if we don't understand why, then we will have no idea how this applies to us other than thinking, that's pretty cool. But it's not here to be cool. It's here to have great significance. And so those are the two questions I want to ask of this text today. Why is this happening? And then how does this impact me today? And so number one, why is this happening? For that, we need to understand the history and the significance of the symbolism. Now, if you are hoping this week for an entertaining sermon, a sermon that you can slightly switch off in and not have to think, you've come to the wrong place, because I'm going to need you to really think with me. This is, this is more college students' paradise this morning, okay? It's going to be very important that you understand the significance and symbolism of what is absolutely taking place here. Otherwise, we will not understand it. So try not to have a little rest Try to engage, and then hopefully as we come all bring it together at the end, you will see that this is simply profound what is going on here. So why is this happening? Well, there are two things in this story that are filled with massive significance and massive symbolism. Here's the first one. The symbolism and significance of the time. Jesus hasn't just walked in at any time. He's walked in at this time. Look at verse 13. The Passover. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What time of year is it? It's the Passover. And that is hugely significant. See, if you study the history of the Passover, you will realize that Jesus walked into the temple at a critical time. 1,400 years before this moment of taking place, the people of Israel, the Jews, are slaves. They're slaves to the nation of, of Egypt. And they're slaves. They are completely and utterly in bondage. Around 1800 BC, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph, you know, remember the one? Multicolored coat. Love him. Everyone's a hero. But he upset his brothers and they said, you know what? You are just an absolute idiot. So we're going to sell you into slavery. We've had a gut full of you. And so they sell him into slavery. And Joseph then makes his way as a slave to Egypt. (laughs) Incredibly enough, he's bought by Potiphar, the, the captain of the guard. Through a history of events then that unrolls with Potiphar's wife, Joseph ends up in jail. It's pretty like upsetting what takes place. But in God's sovereignty, he ends up in jail so that ultimately he can interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And when he does that, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Talk about God's sovereignty. Have you ever thought about in your life things that are going horribly wrong? You think, where is God in this? Well, examine Joseph. He's been there too. But God had ordained all things for his glory and Joseph's good. Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt. And as the prime minister of Egypt, he saved not only that nation, but all the nations around him from absolute famine. 
There was a great famine came on the land, but Joseph saved them from that by declaring that that was going to take place seven years before it even arrived. And so for years, they stockpiled all the grain, all the seeds, so they would have things to eat when that happened. Well, at the end of that time, Pharaoh said to Joseph, why don't you bring all your family to come and live in Egypt? Good deal. This is where all the food was. This is where all the land was. So Jacob and Joseph and the entire family come into Egypt, and for years, it is all going great. But one thing's clear about Israel at this time is they knew how to make babies. You know what I'm saying? They basically make babies left, right and center. And as a result, this nation grows massively. So a few years in, Egypt think, you must be joking. We can't just have these guys living here with us. We need to make them slaves. Because if we don't, they could overturn us at the wrong time as a nation. And so they put the people of Israel, the Jews, in bondage. Well, the people of Israel, as God's people, cry out to God, cry out to him for help. And at the right time, then, God raises up a young man by the name of Moses. Moses goes through serious trial in his life. But after many years in the wilderness, he comes back into Egypt and he squares up to Pharaoh and he says, God has told me to tell you to let my people go. Well, Pharaoh is having none of it. So God sends these plagues on the people of Egypt. Pharaoh's still having none of it. And so as the final play, God says, here's what I'm going to do. If you do not let my people go, I'm going to send the angel of death over your land. And the angel of death will kill the firstborn of every household that it goes past. This was a horrific plague to come. The people of Israel, the Jews, were freaking out as well. I mean, what is this going to mean for for their firstborn? But God says to the Jews... I will protect your firstborn. I need you to kill a lamb, a spotless, without blemish, unwrinkled lamb. And when you kill it, I want you to take its blood and put it around the doorposts of your homes. And then when the angel of death passes through Egypt, it will not enter your homes and kill your firstborn. It will pass over your home. And it will pass over your home because of the blood of the lamb. Well, that's exactly what takes place. All the Jewish fathers do indeed kill the lamb. They put the blood around the doorpost. As the angel of death then comes through Egypt, the angel of death enters each home that has no blood on the doorpost and kills the firstborn. But for each Jewish home, that child is saved. Well, Pharaoh is freaking out after this takes place. And he says, you know what? You want to go? Go. Go as a nation. Leave my nation alone. We are in so much grief. You take your nation and you leave us. That's what exactly what Moses does. Moses takes those people and he leads them out of Egypt. And when he gets through the Red Sea and when he gets into the desert, God says to him very clearly that, Moses, I want you to celebrate this meal every year. Every year I want you to celebrate the Passover. Every year I want you to take a lamb and kill it. Every year I want you to celebrate the Passover And I want you to look back then to what I have done for you in Egypt. I want you to look back at how I saved your firstborn through the blood of the Lamb. And in looking back, Moses, I also want you to look forward to a day to come when the Lamb of God will come. One who will come to take away the sins of the world. Well, for 1,400 years, the Jewish nation then have been celebrating the Passover. This would be a massive deal to them. If you can imagine Easter... And birthdays and Christmas all rolled into one. 
That's what the Passover is like for the Jewish nation. This is a big deal. This is a, this is a, a moment and a week of great celebration. And you would always celebrate your Passover in Jerusalem, the place where God ultimately had his people settle. So hundreds of thousands of people would travel up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would swell by up to four times and there would be swamped then with people all congregating in Jerusalem, which is the very reason why Jesus is there too, to celebrate the Passover, the moment where God took his people out of Egypt and the moment to come where God will save all mankind, make it possible for all mankind to be saved through the blood of the Lamb. For years they've been celebrating it. Jerusalem is now swamped with people, hundreds of thousands of people in and around Jerusalem. And it is into this cacophony of activity that Jesus now walks. Not just at any time, but at Passover. And not just any person, but the one that John the Baptist had just pointed to and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb was always the one that Jesus was pointing to. And so in he comes into the temple at a time filled with significance and symbolism. But that's not all that's filled with significance and symbolism. The second thing that is filled with symbolism and significance is the place. The symbolism and significance of the place. It's not only the time, it's the place too. Read verse 14. The first three words, in the temple. This isn't just any time. This is the Passover and this isn't just any place. This is the temple. The temple of God, a place that is absolutely dripping with symbolism and significance. See, to understand the significance of the temple, you have to go much further back than Egypt. To understand the significance of the temple, you have to go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2. See, the Garden of Eden is a place where in God's grace, God and man dwelt in perfect harmony. The Garden of Eden is a place where God and man walked together and dwelt together and enjoyed life together in glorious unity. But in Genesis chapter 3, mankind rejects that. Mankind rejects God. It exchanges the creation for the creator. It starts to reject God and sin against him. He starts in the person of Adam to reject God's rule, to take for granted that which he has said and reject it and do the very thing that he has said we shouldn't. The Garden of Eden then was a place where God and man could enjoy perfect harmony, but due to the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, separation came. See, what is it that happens at the end of Genesis 3? God drives them from the garden. He drives them away from his presence. He makes it clear that because of your sin, for me and my holiness, I can no longer relate to you. So for your own protection, I'm going to drive you from the garden and I'm going to separate myself from you and you must separate yourself from me. Well, as mankind following Adam and Eve we still get to participate and grieve over that separation. We're still separated from God, are we not? But all of us have fallen short. Man is called to worship God and love God and serve God, and yet we don't. We're separated from God. 
And yet in Genesis chapter 3, with them having been driven out of the garden, God in his grace, though, still gives them a hope. He gives them a hope that there is indeed a way back. And in Exodus chapter 25, he reinforces that hope with the introduction of the tabernacle. See, the tabernacle was hugely significant. Ever since they came out of Egypt, they not only celebrated the Passover, but God instructed Moses to build a tabernacle, a place where symbolically God would meet with man. The tabernacle would go right in the middle of all the tribes. And so if we were all the tribes, the tabernacle would be right there. And then we would all be camping around the tabernacle. Symbolically, that that is the place where God dwells. And symbolically, that that is the place where we can still meet with God today. For years then, the nation of Israel carried this tabernacle around with them. I mean, it must have been quite an eyesore, to be honest. Can you imagine this nation just walking around with all these tent parts all the time? That's exactly what they did. And every time they settle in a place, they build the tabernacle and they then begin to encamp around it. For years in the desert, that's exactly what they did. Literally hundreds of years. Until they settled in Jerusalem. The permanent place where God had given them a home. And when they settled then in Jerusalem, God instructed King Solomon, David's son, to build him a temple. For this was basically going to be a tabernacle built with stone. A permanent tabernacle. Somewhere that God could dwell and he could still meet with his people in the context of the temple. Well, King Solomon built him an amazing temple. So amazing that Nebuchadnezzar then dismantled it and destructed it. So Zerubbabel had a go several years later. He built a temple. Well, that got destroyed too. And so Herod, to appease the Jews, he built his temple too. It took him 46 years, and it is this temple now that Jesus walks into. It had taken 46 years to build, and this temple now, Herod's temple, just like the temple of Zerubbabel and the temple of Solomon and the tabernacle before that, this temple also was absolutely stoked with symbolism and significance. See, the temple symbolically brimmed with significance and showed us so many things. Three things in particular that come to mind. Number one, the temple signifies the separation between God and man. Have you ever wondered why there's so many courts in the temple? You know, there's a lot of curtains, eh? And there's a lot of different rooms. And so there's the Holy of Holies. And then that's surrounded by curtain. And then there's the sanctuary. And that's surrounded by a curtain. Then there's the inner court. And the outer court. And everywhere they look, there are rooms within rooms. Places that you cannot go. Places that you must not go. Places of distinct and very clear separation. Well, the temple signifies that separation for a purpose. It symbolifies the separation between God and man. For mankind had blown it in the garden. And had therefore separated themselves from God. But the temple signified that separation. It was there deliberately Revealing the separation between God and man. Around the Holy of Holies, the place where the Shekinah glory was, the place where God in symbolically dwelt, was a, was a curtain that was six inches thick, filled with clasps right down the middle. It was two very clear parts. So if, if God was there on the ark, there would be a massive curtain here. It would be a similar color to that one. And down the middle, there would be clasps that hold it together. But you couldn't go in it because there was separation between God and man. 
Just like we were separated in the garden, the temple signified that separation. The temple also signifies God's desire and plan for reconciliation with man, though. It didn't just signify a separation. It, it signified and simplified the hope of restoration to come. See, once a year, and it must have been an amazing day for the nation, but once a year, the great high priest on the Day of Atonement would get to go in that curtain. It was a fearful moment. It was a moment where the whole nation would be awaiting with bated breath, will God kill him? I mean, he's just a man. He's the great high priest, but this is God. And so the rumor had it that the great high priest would actually put a rope around his waist and would put bells around his ankles because the premise was, you need to go in there, you need to do what you've got to do, and you need to keep walking around. And if we hear those bells go, if they stop going... We're going to pull you out because we ain't coming in after you. You know, the whole premise was, if you're going to die in there, I'm pulling you out by a rope, but I'm not coming after you. They were so fearful that the great high priest could be struck down as the great high priest encountered God. But nonetheless, the temple then did signify God's hope and plan for reconciliation with man. It may have only been once a year, but nonetheless, once a year, the great high priest got to go in. And as he went in, God didn't strike him down. He dwelt with him. So people always knew there's going to be a way back. I don't know how. I don't know when. But there's going to be a way to God. There's going to be a way, in a sense, back to the garden, back to the place where we can dwell with God again. The temple signifies that. It signifies the separation. It signifies God's desire and plan for reconciliation. But more than that, it signifies God's means for that reconciliation with man to take place. See, the great high priest wouldn't dare to go in on his own accord. He didn't like try and live a really good life that year, hoping that I've lived a really good life, I'm, I'm going in. That wouldn't have been enough for him. He knew it wasn't about works. He knew that it wasn't about what he was doing. And so what did the great high priest take with him? The blood of a lamb. They would kill a firstborn lamb. They would put its blood in a bowl. And the great high priest then, with bells on his ankles and a rope around his waist, would head into that curtain. And as he spends time with God, he would be taking the blood of the lamb all along and putting it on the mercy seat, putting it on the ark of the covenant, showing God, I'm not here on my own account. I'm here through the blood of a lamb. I'm here through the blood of a lamb. Lord, don't strike me down. I'm here through the blood of a lamb. The temple then always revealed to us that that reconciliation between God and man would be through the sacrificial blood of another. The way back to God would never be works. The way back to God would be blood. It would be sacrificial blood. The blood of a true spotless lamb. The temple then is packed with symbolism and significance, is it not? It is absolutely jam-packed with the stuff. It points us back to our separation with God, but it also points us forward to God's desire and plan for reconciliation, and it points us forward to the means of that reconciliation, namely being the blood of the Lamb. And it is into that temple then, in the week of the Passover, that Jesus now walks. Well, that symbolism 
And that significance certainly changes things a little bit, doesn't it? This isn't just a random time of year. This is the Passover. And Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And this isn't just any time of year. This isn't just any place that he's about to walk into. This is the temple. This is the place where God has dwelt for years. This is the place where mankind comes to worship and praise and pray. This is the place where the great high priest once a year through the blood of the Lamb goes beyond the curtain and encounters God. This is the place of great significance. And as Jesus walks in then, he expects this room to be filled with singing and worship and praise and sacrifice. But it is not. It is filled with bartering and buying and selling. And he freaks out. He freaks. He has come into the temple of God. And they have trivialized it. They are over to the side just buying things and selling things. Two pigeons for a pound. That's what was going on as he was taking place going into there. And he is disgusted. He is righteously indignant with what is taking place. And so picture the scene. This is utter chaos. Everybody's in the temple. This place is absolutely packed. This place is like Hornsby Westfield two days before Christmas. This place is absolutely buzzing with people. And Jesus walks in and freaks out. There would have been selling of animals. So there would have been cords all over the floor as they undid the boxes that animals are in. And so he picks some of them up and he starts weaving them together. I would have loved to look in his eyes as he was doing that. But he ties them together. And then he starts going around all the people and he whips them. And he whips the people, telling them to get out. He gets the pigeons and he gets the goats and the sheep and he whips them, trying to drive everything out. The Greek word there, papoo, it doesn't just mean, oh, if you wouldn't mind, please leave. He's driving them out. He is absolutely getting rid of these people. He is lambasting them. When he gets bored with that, he goes to the money changing area and he picks up these pots of money and he starts pouring them over the place. He's throwing it about the place. Can you imagine the mayhem? All the people thinking, hang on, that's my money. They're all on the floor scrabbling about. And while they're on the floor, he starts to whip them and he starts to get the table and starts pushing the tables over. It is utter chaos and madness what Jesus is doing here. He is causing absolute and utter chaos. He is freaking out. And in verse 17 then, as the disciples see this and they look at them, they remember Psalm 69 verse 9 that says, Zeal for his father's house will consume him. That's exactly what was taking place here with Jesus. He has caused utter pandemonium. He is freaking out. But I think when you put the symbolism and the significance of the time and the place into the criteria, you start to realize why. You start to realize why he is burning with so much righteous anger. See, in a sentence, this is why this is happening. The reason why Jesus is freaking out is this. Listen. He's freaking out because they have trivialized something that God in all his glory has given great significance to. He is freaking out because they have trivialized something that God in his majesty and splendor has given great and perfect significance to. He is freaking out because they have taken the truly magnificent And made it utterly mundane. 
They have made the truly glorious and taken something that is truly glorious and made it utterly meaningless. They have trivialized something that God, in all his splendor and majesty and glory, has declared significant, the temple. But they have trivialized it. What are they doing here? Selling stuff? It wasn't that they were necessarily ripping people off. That's not the point. It wasn't even that they were exchanging money. People were traveling from lots of different lands and so they needed to change their money. And in order to change the money, they needed to buy the things that they were offering. But his anger and wrath is that they are doing that here. And this is not the place for that. This is the temple. This is the temple of God. This place is packed with significance and meaning. And yet they have emptied it of meaning. They have made it utterly mundane. And so he is consumed with zeal for his father's house and he freaks out. He is distraught with what is taking place in this temple. You know, one of the programs I used to watch years ago, I don't know if it ever made it here, was Cash in the Attic. Has that ever been on here? You've missed out. Okay, well, Cash in the Attic is basically this program about, you know, people want to save up in in England for like really important things. And so 10 years ago, really important things were like a microwave. We really want to get a microwave or we really want to go to Skegness on our holidays. And So what they would do is they would get people in, like proper experts that would look around people's attics and try and find things that would be worth something. And then they would take these things that would be worth something and try and sell them either at car boot sales or at different shops or things like that. And, and for me, this was a program that I, that I had a love-hate relationship with because it freaked me out. There was things about the program that I just absolutely detested because here's what would happen. You would get somebody and you'd say, so, what are you trying to save up for? Oh, yes, new microwaves, really important, really want a new microwave. Oh, that's really, really important. And then they would look around the attic, they would go into the loft area, and they would just start searching through all their goods. And lo and behold, they would always pick people with really smart goods. And so they would find things, and they'd be like, wow, look look at this picture here. That's amazing. Oh, what's he got on there? And, And you realize, oh, this is a picture... Uh, in the war when great uncle Albert got his face blown off and received the, the Victoria Cross as a result. And they're like, oh, 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 what's this? Oh, it is the Victoria Cross. And so, so they find the Victoria Cross and they'd be polishing it off and they'd see the picture of great uncle Albert and they'd be like, man, this is a, this is a great story. I mean, obviously you wouldn't want to sell this. And they'd be like, oh yes, I'd sell that. And you're like, really? really? Yeah, how much would you, oh, I don't know, 20 pounds, 20 pounds? Oh, that would be good towards your microwave. And, and you just think, what are you doing? You cannot sell that. You can't put that on eBay. This is great Uncle Albert's Victoria Cross. This is hugely significant, hugely symbolic, and yet you are emptying it of worth to try and buy a microwave. That's what's happening here with Jesus. He is indignant. What are you doing? This is the temple. This is the Passover. I am the Passover lamb. This is the temple, a place of separation, but a place where God in his grace through hundreds and thousands of years, 1400 years, have revealed to you that though you were separate, there would be a way back and that that way back would be through the blood of the lamb. What are you doing here then? What's going on? How could you do this to this place that is so brimming with symbolism and significance? Well, how then does this apply to us today? Which is really our second question. Because it does. 
And I think when you realize the symbolism and significance of why Jesus is so freaking out, that it really helps to then begin to drill down as to how it relates to you and how it relates to me today. Listen, here's the thing I want you to go away with. How do we apply this? We need to do all we can to ensure that 2,000 years on, we don't trivialize that which God in all his glory is still giving great significance to today. We need, by the grace of God, to ensure that 2,000 years on from this moment, we don't trivialize that which God in all his glory is still giving great significance to today. You see, there is no doubt by way of application that on one level, John, the Apostle John, the Evangelist John, wants to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and that as we see Jesus being the Son of God, we may believe and have a life in his name. He always wants to do that, doesn't he? So every time we're going to be saying, listen, that's what he wants to do because that's what he's passionate about. That's why he's writing this book. And if you read from verse 18 through 22, that's what happens. Let's read it together. It says, so the Jews said to him, now, just to give context, Jesus has just had his freak out moment. Everybody's been driven out. The place is cooled down. Jesus has cooled down a bit. And so they go to him and basically saying, what's your problem? What the heck has just gone on? So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There is no doubt that at one level then, John wants to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. After cleansing the temple, the Jews start to interact with Jesus. You'll notice the Greeks always want wisdom, right? Not the Jews. They always want, they want miracles. They want signs. The Jews want signs. The Greeks want wisdom. We're dealing with the Jews here. So they want miracles. Jesus, what the heck have you just done? And if you're anybody significant, give us a sign. Do something. Perform. Could you imagine what the disciples are thinking? If I'm a disciple of Jesus in that moment, here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> More wine. I mean, check it out. Just a few days ago, Jesus, the Messiah, pulled off an incredible gag. You are in for a treat. That's not what he does. He's moved on. He looks him in their eyes and says, you know what? You know the temple? You kick it down. And in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews are like, what is your problem? What are you on about? Are you aware this took 46 years to build? They don't get it. They don't understand it in any shape or form what Jesus is trying to say. But his disciples do. The disciples, three years on in hindsight, realize exactly what Jesus meant. They realize that Jesus was talking about the temple, was talking about his body. Because three years from this moment, at the time of the Passover, Jesus himself would be hanging on a cross as the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb. He would die a vicarious death in our place. And he would cry out with a loud voice at a specific moment in time, It is finished. Well, what happened in the temple at that moment when he did that? I'll tell you what happened in the temple at the moment when he did that. That blue curtain that always had clasps in the middle, that six-inch curtain 
that was always put together with clasps separating God and man begins to break. God ordainly breaks it from top to bottom as he makes it clear that my son's work, the work that he has now completed as your Passover lamb, has been accepted. The way has now been made open, not only once a year, but to anybody who would put their faith in the blood of the lamb to access the great I am, to access the holy of holies, to access God in all his majesty and awe and splendor. Three years later, Jesus would die on a cross and the curtain would be torn in two. And three days after that, after Jesus breathed his last, God broke back into Jesus' life. He raised him from the dead, just as Jesus said would happen. As a perfect example that his son's sacrifice had had indeed been accepted in full. He raised him from the death. It is finished, son. The son on the cross declares it is finished. Three days later, God says, it is. It's done. The curtain has been torn in two. And for all those then who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they may approach God in all his majesty because they have been forgiven of their sin. The blood has washed away their sin and they have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that now it is as if they are the great high priest. And so each believer then approaches in their own right, clothed in the blood of the Lamb and stands before God in his sanctuary. The Jews didn't get it, but the disciples did get it. Three years on, they understood he was talking about himself. The Jesus, the Savior, who would die in their place and three days later rise again. And he's saying it to us because he wants us to get it. He wants you to get it. He wants you to see that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one who came to take away the sin of the world. He's the one, the only one, that came as God himself to show that there is a way back to the Holy of Holies. How? Through his death on a cross. For your sin has so many consequences. Your sin and my sin separates us from God. That's what was revealed in the temple. But Jesus' perfect sacrifice broke the seals, broke the curtain. And now through faith in his blood, we have access to God in his entirety and fullness. So on one level, there is no doubt that John wants to show us that Jesus is the Son of God and that by seeing that, we may believe in his name and have life in his name. But on another level, and I think a deeper level, a level that we need to understand and grasp, otherwise we'll never be able to really draw the juice out of this text. At a completely other level, I also believe there's something more for us to apply here. And that's like I said this. The exhortative warning to ensure that 2,000 years on, we not trivialize that which God in all his glory is still giving great significance to today. What do I mean by that? It's in the text. The temple. Zeal for his house consumed him. What house? The temple. For folks 2,000 years on, I'll tell you what the modern day temple is. It's the church. It's the church which he is still building. See, 2,000 years on, the temple, 2,000 years ago, the temple was a place. 
It was a place that Jesus walked into and he zealed with passion towards all that was going on and was therefore indignant with what was the, the way people were treating it so trivially. But 2,000 years on, if Jesus was walking into the temple, he'd be walking into a people. Because 2,000 years on, the temple is not only, not, no longer a place. It is indeed a people. Listen to Ephesians 2. This is where Paul tells us about it. Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 2,000 years ago, the temple was a place. Not anymore. 2,000 years on today, the temple is a people. The temple is a people. And Jesus is passionate about it. The temple is a people that God, by his grace, is building together with great precision. He is taking people who used to be foreigners and aliens, but he is now taking them and making them fellow citizens and members of the household of God. He is taking people from every tribe and every language and nation, and he is bringing them together as bricks and building them together and building them into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He is giving then his temple, his bride, his body, great purpose. A purpose not only to corporately be the dwelling place for God, but a purpose on this earth to be the body of Christ. A purpose whereby we unite together as brothers and sisters. As we come together from different bricks, from different languages and nations, we unite together to reveal Jesus in our communities. Where is Jesus' body in Sydney today? Here's one place right here. In you, in our lives, we are called to be his hands and his feet. We are his temple. And he has given great purpose to this church, not only in this community, but to beyond this world. Ephesians 3 tells us that the church, it is through the church, the temple, the body, the bride of Christ, through the church, that we are to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to those in the heavenly realms. So that as the angels and rulers and authorities look over and peer over heavenly realms, they may see in you and I, people who by grace, who were never reconciled before, who have now been reconciled through Jesus Christ, and in a way that are rejoicing together, and doing life together, and serving one another, and confessing to one another, and rejoicing together, are revealing the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly realms. The church, the temple, is a people that God has great purpose for, and the church... The people of God in his amazing grace is who he's coming back for. The temple. The temple. The church. The bride, the body. The temple. The temple is a people today, 2,000 years on, still packed with great significance. The temple is a people that by God's grace he is building together with great precision. The temple is a people that God has given great purpose to. And the temple is also a people that God in his amazing grace is coming back for. The temple is where it is all about. There was a good Christian man called Arthur Wallace. And he once said to young people, of which I was one of, he said, you want to find out what Jesus is doing in your generation? Then find it out, go find it out, and then give your life to it. I found out. You know what he's still doing in our generation? 
He's still doing in our generation what he was doing in the generation before and the generation before that and the generation before that. He is taking people from different tribes and languages and nations and he is bringing us together to build the local church, to build the bride, to build the temple. The same thing that he was doing then is still the same thing he's doing today. And so you don't want to waste your life, then build it. Build the temple. And you want to know how passionate he is about the temple? You want to know how zealous he is for the house of God? You want to know how he feels about the church? Then behold Calvary. That's how he feels about the temple. As he hangs there and dies there in a bloody mess. And he says, Father, forgive them for for they know not what they do. That is passion for the church, my friends. That is passion for his bride. That is passion for his temple. And as you behold it then, here's the thing I want you to understand. 2,000 years on then, we must ensure that we not trivialize that which God in all his glory is still giving great significance to today. You want to know what he's giving great significance to today? It's the same as what he was giving great significance to 2,000 years ago. The temple. The body. The bride. The church. You want to know how passionate he is about the temple? Then behold Calvary. And as you behold it, folks, I want to encourage you. We must ensure that by God's grace, we not push the church the temple that Jesus died for, to the circumference when God has so clearly placed it at the center. You want to know how to not trivialize the church? How to not trivialize the temple? You need to understand that in divine redemptive history, in the gospel, God has placed the church not on the circumference. He has placed the church at the center. For this is his bride. This is his body. This is his temple. The church then was always called by God to be at the center. So you want to guard against trivializing then that which God puts so much significance to? Guard then against removing to the circumference the temple, the church, the place that God in redemptive history always placed at the center. Not only for us corporately, but for us individually in our lives You know, maybe for some of you, that's hard. Maybe you've been hurt in the past. Maybe you're not a part of this church and you have been to different churches and you've been hurt by the church. And because of that, you always have a standoff relationship with the church. You you don't argue with me theologically, but you argue with me experientially because you don't want to get hurt again. My friends, I want to encourage you, don't let your past dictate your future. For this is the bride of Christ. And so there's a time to realize that what is gone is gone. But I must not, by the grace of God, push to the circumference because I've been hurt in the past what God has placed at the center. Maybe you just find relationships hard and that causes you to back off. Maybe you feel awkward about relationships and because of that you just try and keep out the way and so you have to come on a Sunday but that's kind of about it because it would involve relationships with people and you don't want that. Well, you were saved into the context of community, my friends. That's the way God made it. And relationships, albeit difficult sometimes, are a mess worth making. 
Because we can't do it by ourselves. We were never designed to. But we were designed to come from different situations and different backgrounds, different bricks of different shapes and sizes. And we are designed by God to be called so that he can come and bring us together in the context of local churches to build his temple. We must guard then. We must fully guard whatever our past against our future. We must ensure that by God's grace we not push the church, the temple that Jesus died for, to the circumference when so clearly he has placed it in divine history at the center. You know, the Gospel of John is a great gospel, isn't it? We said way back on the first week that the Gospel of John, as Leon Morris says, is like a swimming pool, shallow enough that a child may wade in it and deep enough that an elephant can swim in it. And I think that's true. It is so accessible for everybody, no matter where we're at. The Gospel of John is accessible to us. It's shallow enough to wade in, but it's also deep enough for elephants to absolutely swim in. The Gospel of John, then, is a great Gospel. But more than that, my friends, I think in all glory, it reveals a great Saviour. And so would we marvel in Him? Would we stand at that temple entrance in our lives, aware that that curtain has now been torn in two, not because of me, but because of the blood of the Lamb? Would we stand then and marvel regularly at the finished work of Jesus Christ, understanding the symbolism and the significance? And would we lose ourselves then in wonder and awe as we realize all that he's done for us? Would we marvel at him in voice? And would we marvel at him in action too? For zeal for his house consumes him. Would zeal for the temple today consume us too? Would we be passionate about that which he is passionate about? And when we do then, when we align ourselves with the Saviour, would grace and all glory go to him? Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we close, Lord, I... I sense we're on holy ground because as this story is filled with so much symbolism and significance it it cannot help but have an effect on our lives Lord would we not move on too quickly from the glory of all that you have done thank you Jesus that you died in our place as the true Passover lamb that you died the most gruesome of deaths And as you did, the curtain was torn into a curtain that we now just walk through. Lord, would we never trivialize what it is to walk through that curtain? Lord, with so much history behind it, would we not take for granted that we get to freely approach you? For this cost you your life. Oh Lord, would we not trivialize the temple? Would we not trivialize that which you died for, that which you came to bleed for in our place? Would we not trivialize the church? It's your bride. It's your body. So Lord, help us then to not push to the circumference what you have placed at the center. And in doing so, Lord, would our eyes always firmly be fixed on you. For what a gospel. But more importantly, what a saving. Amen.